Matt, welcome to Validated. Thanks for having me, Austin. One of the things I'm really looking forward to talking to you about today is your role at Thesis. I want to talk a bit about the merger of Keep and NewCypher that went into creating the Threshold Network. I, I think mergers in this space are, are rare. They usually don't yeah. work, uh, <laughs> but especially they're usually rare among two decentralized networks. So I really yeah. want to talk about that a bit. But primarily here today, I want to talk about Threshold BTC because love it, hate it. You can't ignore it. Bitcoin is the backbone of collateral in DeFi nowadays. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, what that means, though, is Bitcoin is, of course, a network where there are no smart contracts. And Taproot people, I'm sorry, there are still no smart contracts. Uh, there's no real smart contracts on Bitcoin that exist today. And so what that means is every instance of Bitcoin that exists somewhere else in the world on someone else's network, whether that's Bitcoin on Ethereum, Bitcoin on Solana, uh, Bitcoin on, you know, centralized exchanges. Yeah. Those are all custody versions of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is inherently custodial when it exists on someone else's network. But not all custody solutions are created equal. Uh, some of those are centralized through trusted providers like BitGo, who is behind uh, wrapped Bitcoin, which is sort of, I'd say, probably the market dominant version of Bitcoin that Absolutely. exists today. Uh, and then some of that is, you know, through other decentralized custody solutions. And this is where Threshold uh, Network comes into play in the TBTC product. So I'm excited to get into all of this here today with you on Validated. Sam, where do you want to start? So I want to start uh, with the Threshold Network itself and thesis sure. and the origins of TBTC. Sure, so, sure. For those, uh, you know, I'm not sure if actually you know this, but back in the days, I used to work for Bison Trails, and you know, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the launch of Keep and New Cipher were actually two of the protocols that we helped support the genesis for uh, back in you know 2020 at Bison Trails. Um, so it's really cool to kind of have gone like full circle on this. Yeah, you know, at this point, we were talking about like genesis of people being like, I want to lock up some ETH for a certain period of time, run some nodes, earn some tokens. Um, but this was sort of back in the days where I think pure play utility protocols were launching as almost their own entire network. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about where the vision for the threshold network came from. So I guess a little bit about me before TPTC and threshold, I got into the space because I had a side hustle, uh, at my first startup buying and selling gift cards. And uh, I realized I could, you know, buy them for 60 cents on the dollar, sell them for 95. I launched a website that did that and PayPal immediately was like, no, 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 that's great finance. You're out of here. And so that's actually how I, how I got to Bitcoin. But the reason that I mentioned that is because, you know, the reason that I'm interested in Bitcoin is ultimately the same reason that I got involved for the first place, right? Which is I don't want to see people get deplatformed. I don't think that there should be someone deciding what is or isn't a good use for your money. And frankly, just as an entrepreneur, I needed a solution. And at the time, Bitcoin was the solution. So fast forwarding to TBDC, we started building Keep. And the idea with Keep was I very quickly, you know, when I got into Ethereum, I was like, oh, cool. This makes a lot of sense. Smart contracts make sense. You know, I, it just, it just clicked, uh, it, like with my engineer brain. But what I immediately struggled with is thinking about all the applications where you have data, for example, social security number. And most of the time in a DAP, you just want to keep that data local, right? So you're like, look, this user should only have access to this data. But every once in a while, you actually need 
private information to be socialized. So maybe you don't want every counterparty to have access to the data in clear text, but you need them to be able to say like, no, I'm confident it was this person with the social security number, or I'm confident that it's the same person with the same social security number. And so, you know, this was, this was the battle days. This is 2017, 2018. And so we were like, okay, well, how would you build an EHR on top of Ethereum? How, how would you build, how would you work with health data? And as we dug more and more into some of these problems and some of the apps that we wanted to launch, which had to do with gift cards and all sorts of weird bits of gray finance, as PayPal might call it, we realized that there was this missing piece, which is, okay, well, how can you actually custody private data off-chain in a way that is still something you can reason about on-chain? So you still need to be able to say, no, no, I'm confident this person has access to this particular credit card number or gift card number or social or whatever. And so that's what originally led to me spending time on Keep. So the, the mathematical technique used here is, is multi-party computation. And we hear about MPC all the time today because people are talking about it in wallets. But in 2017, this was something that really hadn't been applied to chains at all. The only idea of privacy at the time was, you know, Zcash's version of privacy, which is, you know, a very specific application of Starks. And so that's what originally got us into Keep. But it didn't take long before we realized that the best immediate application for all the multi-party computation we were, we were playing with was actually bridging. Yeah. So when you look at Bitcoin, it's like looking at it like an alien culture, right? So if you're, if you're in Solana, if you're, if you're on Ethereum, you have a very specific kind of like technology first or technology optimist way of looking at the world. Most of those elements of Bitcoin culture left. They left after the block size debate. And it's not because the small blockers were wrong. Small blockers were definitely right. Like history has shown that on, you know, they were right. Wait, wait, let's go into that for a second. Tell no, me why uh, the yeah, small yeah. blockers were, were unequivocally yeah, so, definitely right. So here's why I think they were unequivocally definitely right. And, and this isn't true of every network, but Bitcoin, its entire premise and purpose was about being first and about being unbreakable. And the whole crypto market has been built. Like, you know, the most terrifying thing about the flippening, and if that ever happens, it's not, oh my God, my bags or whatever. It's how does the space work if Bitcoin is not number one? How do we reason about things? And a lot of people say, oh, it works fine. It could be ETH or solar, this or that or the other. Uh, but I would argue that no. <laughs> like, I think we probably need another four, four to eight years before we're really confident. Um, <laughs> no, I, I know. I'm, 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 right, I'm here so to provoke you, we're, Austin. <laughs> we're six minutes into recording, or off the rails, and I love it. Um, so <laughs> I, I want to push you on this. Yeah, uh, please. Because I think I'm one of those people who's sort yeah. of like, yep, Bitcoin's useful, Bitcoin's sure. great. Um, Bitcoin is not a part of the day-to-day -day lives of sure. almost anyone, sure. right? Like, uh, the, you know, and I don't mean that as a derogatory term for no, Bitcoin, no, no, but I'm sort of like, I don't think much about the bond market. I don't really feel like the bond market is like the underpinning that the keeps- the size of the bond market. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. hear you. Um, so, so I'm not so, gonna- So tell me I won't try to completely about... convince you because that'll take more than the hour we've given ourselves. No, no, ourselves. but like, but, but give, me, give, me your, give me your argument yeah. for why- um, the flipping yeah, so, is, as a cultural moment, something that people should be, at the very least, paying attention to and thinking yeah, about. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to talk a lot about people who are outside the space rather than how we feel inside the space, because I think it's pretty different. A lot of people outside the space think everything is Bitcoin. Every cryptocurrency thing is Bitcoin. Either they think that or they think that every cryptocurrency thing is a dog-themed scam. 
right? They don't have like, there's not a lot of nuance. When you, if you look at a chart from one to 3000 assets, it's easy to talk about one. The second you start talking about two, you've introduced why. What's the difference? And when you talk about 10, 20, 30, 40, suddenly to understand that list of assets, you need to really be deep in our space and say, no, 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 no. This thing over here with this ticker you've never heard of, it is a scam, but this thing actually, it's just a very choice token. And you have to have all this like rationale. People suddenly are being asked, well, are you excited about the tech of Solana? Are you excited about the economics of Ethereum. So there's all this nuance that I think is incredibly difficult for people out of our space to keep track of. So that's my like in-group versus out-of-group, right? Sure. Does that, does that kind of make sense? So like if, so, if we don't have a number one that people can understand, I, I don't see how they're going to understand the next few hundred. So I guess my argument would be yeah. that gold does not actually run the world economy anymore. Sure. And that like Yes, like you can look at gold and on one level you can be very intrinsically like, okay, I get it, shiny metal yeah. valuable. Ha that seems to make much more sense than a mortgage-backed security or sure. pork barrel futures. Sure. On the other side, like gold, shiny thing, money, sure, why? You can't eat it. That's it's actually not that rare. Like there's yeah. a whole bunch of reasons why like, yeah, the, see, it, it, like the gold <laughs> standard didn't It's funny to up. be, you brought up gold, not me. So have you noticed I haven't said digital gold once? I haven't played into any of that. I've just said, if something is number one, it's not number one anymore. I, I think that the world right now looks at crypto as an asset class. And I think when they think about that asset class, what they're mostly thinking about is the properties of Bitcoin. And yeah. I think that asking them to understand the top 100 in coin market cap is really big. And so I think if, if and when, uh, I'll stick with if, I guess, if there is a flipping, I think that the amount that the world is going to need to understand about crypto to differentiate between all of these different assets is pretty incredible. And frankly, if they take the time to understand, we'll have already won, right? Because we'll, we'll have told sure. every person, you know? So, so maybe what I'm saying is we shouldn't get too excited about the flipping and coming in too early because I think it could, I, I frankly think it could kill the space. It happens too early. Isn't that sort of like yeah. saying if Apple becomes more valuable than oh. like a national currency than like sure. that national current like I, I guess the analogy it's more like here... saying if apple is more valuable than usd and that would be shocking yes uh interesting is aramco yeah. more valuable than the saudi sovereign wealth fund now i think the answer is no because they sure. own a bunch of aramco but right. I, I think there's like an existential question there about like well Implicit in that assumption, and this is where sure. we bring it back to threshold Bitcoin, yeah. is that Bitcoin is the reserve currency of blockchain. True. Do you think that's accurate? I think that it should be. Okay. I think first, the reason the Aramco Saudi thing doesn't work out is because Apple being larger than USD is important because USD is the world's reserve currency. Being larger than another small country or even another large country's currency or GDP or whichever specific country specific API you want to use, it's not that big a deal. It's when something goes from being number one that everyone believes deeply it's number one to being number two that all of the economic rules get reset. So right now in our space, we have this rough four-year cycle. And okay, I'm not trying to predict prices, but like what else has a rough four-year cycle, right? So I guess my my point really is just, you know, that doesn't mean Bitcoin needs to be number one forever. It means the second it's not, the space is going to change a lot. And uh, we should make sure we're ready. But yeah, bringing it back to TBTC, 
I think BTC should be the lateral across the space. I think that a lot of us have a tendency to, to think that whoever wins should have the best tech. A lot of us who aren't Bitcoiners, so like basically everyone else, the whole rest of the space, right? I think that it feels like there's this race between tech and speed. Sometimes they care about reliability, sometimes they don't, but there's, there's, this, uh, there's this kind of fight. And so it's easy to say like, who cares about Bitcoin? But instead of trying to convince you that Bitcoin is good collateral, I, I think it's probably easier to just say, why in the world are we talking about real world assets, which require all sorts of nonsense to get on chain and obviously can never really be fully natively on chain. When we have Bitcoin, that's twice the size of its next crypto asset that we can pull onto these chains. So I think really when I'm talking to people who are already sort of like crypto pilled and they're already yeah. like, no, 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 it's about the tech and it's about this smart contract, this part of DeFi, this permissionless, this. Well, it's like you should reach for Bitcoin first because real world assets, like who, who cares if you tokenize a skyscraper and put it on chain because that's one quarter away from being worth nothing. And I think we can do better with Bitcoin. Yeah. So I guess let me just kind of strongman a counter here, which is that Bitcoin isn't actually on chain if you're not sure. on Bitcoin. Right on every other network, as we talked about, there there's some form of custody risk, and I think I, I would actually say at this point the smart contract risk in EVM space or the SVM space or basically any smart contract risk is probably higher than the existential risk that I don't know. Let's just say that the uh, the U.S. government eminent domains a skyscraper in New York City. Okay. I think that's probably a less likely event to happen. Sure. Or that the fundamental property rights of like, you know, tokenized minerals in the United States get sure. changed than a smart contract gets hacked on Ethereum or Solana. Sure. So let's say we can't get perfect non-custodial interaction with Bitcoin. There's still a whole variety of other things, right? So like my favorite way to measure the decentralization of a system and using the word decentralization is already a huge flag, but let's just let it fly for a second is how many uh, doors have to be knocked down before you can make something stop. So, you know, it's one door for real world assets. Yeah. Usually it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's one court order or, or one office door. And even Bitcoin without built-in interoperability with our other chains, we can get into thousands of doors before these assets can, can be sort of like pierced and compelled or censored. Now it's not perfect. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I still think that that's uh, such a huge improvement over real world assets. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's the argument I'd make. Like, And also, I think um, Bitcoin will get bigger faster than your real world assets will get censorship resistant. So yeah. that would be maybe my my follow up. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is where sort of TBTC comes into play, because, you know, exactly. what you said about knocking on a thousand doors. Historically, it's been one door. Right, it's right. been one company that controls most of the 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 represented Bitcoin between one network and another. Whether that was an exchange or whether that was a custodian, like fundamentally, there there is still one court order. Yeah. Now it's targeting a legal entity, not an individual, but that's the same thing with a skyscraper. Yeah, exactly. If you're a Bitcoiner, like we are gracing DeFi with our presence, you know. And if you're a DeFi person, you're like, oh, okay, well, finally Bitcoin is caught up. So you can take whichever side you want. But the idea with TBTC is to make Bitcoin composable to make it work like any other token. But it's to do it in a way that, um, yeah, you're not just like calling Mike Belshi. You're not just uh, reaching out to the BitGo like trust company, but you actually need to hit up a lot of people to break the guarantees of the system. It's not perfect. Actually, TBTC V1, I might almost say was perfect. It was just incredibly expensive and capital hungry. 
V2 is much cheaper and easier to use, but now we're slowly having to increase the decentralization and make that number go from 20 to, you know, 200 to 2000. Yeah. So let, let's get into V1 and V2. How does threshold yeah. Bitcoin actually work? Yeah. So TBTC V1, um, it was a pretty, I say it's a sublight. It wasn't a sublight. It was uh, this concept that, okay, Bitcoin can't really be moved to another chain. Right. So there has to be a custodian somewhere. So what we did was we said, okay, what if our custodians are three of three multi-sigs that are chosen randomly? So right now we're just talking about three random people in the world that you trust with your Bitcoin. Clearly not a great mechanism, right? But then you go to the next step and you say, okay, they have to be stakers in the system. Okay, so they have something and they have to put down some other collateral. So in TBTC V1, that was just ETH. They put down 150% of the BTC that they would be um, protecting in ETH. And so suddenly it's like you have you have a bridge that is relying on custodians to not steal, but then you take something of the custodians and then you can prove if they've been dishonest and you can take their assets. Um, so that's cool, except for it launched around the same time as ETH2. Right. And what we've learned from DeFi Summer and ever since is like capital efficiency is king, right? So if everyone is trying to stake their ETH, stake their soul, they don't want to also stick it in a system like this where you know, the returns that they're going to get are just like Bitcoin bridging fees, which are not super rich. Right. Um, in aggregate, they're nice, but like individually, it's not great. So what V2 does is instead of these three of threes, we say, okay, well, what if now you have a system that's 51 of 100? And what you introduce, and we use this in cryptography all the time, but not very much in cryptocurrency, is this assumption called an honest majority. Yeah. So that is a huge security model shift, right? Suddenly you've gone from people are putting down all of these assets to People are staking to participate, but there's no way that the assets that they put down will cover the assets that could be lost in the bridge. Pretty bold. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you have to trust two things in a V1, right? Bitcoin will be valuable in the future. And, you know, if you're a Bitcoiner, sure. Yeah. Uh, the second is that the relative price between ETH and Bitcoin will not diverge by more than 50%. Because if you're right. truly a Bitcoin maxi and you're like, look, we're going a half a million dollars a token, uh, yeah. You know, I, I think the most bull case for Bitcoin would blow past that 50% over collateralization pretty quickly. Right. And now you've set up all these stickers who are actually taking a position against Bitcoin, right? Because yeah, fundamentally, they don't want to be participating in V1 TBTC is right. short of Bitcoin. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the most obvious place where this was a problem with V1, it was clear when we hit around 2,500 BTC that like there wasn't going to be a lot more ETH coming into the system. Hmm. But the most obvious place was actually talking to stakers. Huh. Where they're like, why do we have to manage all these assets? Why do we need to manage an ETH BTC exposure? Like that's not what we want. Right. We were early on in Keeps Lifecycle, so we had tokens to sort of like cover for that risk. But it was really uncomfortable and it was difficult to participate in the system. So V2 removes all that. Um, but the ex like the what, what you're what you're gaining is scalability. What you're losing is economic assurance, right? So now you're saying, do I have probabilistic assurance? Uh, am I am I very confident that these people, most of them are honest? And so why should someone trust the folks who run the threshold network? Sure. Uh, in yeah. Not like a centralized entity, but like yeah, yeah, yeah. all the nodes, right? Like I think of if course. you're looking at a network like Solana or Ethereum, the yeah. incentives are internal to that network, right? If yeah. you're running a Solana validator, you receive inflationary yep. rewards, you receive transaction fee rewards, same on Ethereum. Yep. If fundamentally the point of a network is to secure another type of asset, which could theoretically become yeah. worth a lot more than that network, like yeah. how does that game theory work? 
Yeah, so there's a serious asymmetry here, right? So there's this asymmetry between the assets that you're protecting and the people who are protecting it. And what it comes down to is, and, and this is where it gets really fun with game theorists, what model do you have of human behavior? Yeah. Do you believe humans are either honest or malicious? That's it. Either they're honest or they're malicious relative to a given system. Do you believe there's all these ideas of like passive malice and passive honesty? Um, but you know how you can really look at it is um, forgetting about whether or not the participants are honest and just talking about whether they get hacked. Yeah. Right. So an argument that I would make in the favor of TBTC is that most holders have been doxxed, very heavily doxxed from private sales, from keeping new cipher, from a variety of exchange elements. Like, you know, it's permissionless to buy tea and to stake. But the vast majority of people who have staked, and it's something like 30% of the supply, are already very heavily doxed. So yeah. one is, you know, are they going to be malicious if they're incredibly heavily doxed? So the next is, okay, probably not. Let's go to our next level. Um, what if they all get hacked? And this is where you really care about diversity of infrastructure, right? So if everything is running on Bison Trails, or some up for Bison Trails, Coinbase Cloud. Everything's running on Coinbase Cloud or everything's just running on like one particular operator. Eventually, the DPRK is going to go after that, right? Eventually, someone with enough resources will take advantage of that asymmetry, even if the people participating have an honest majority. And so I think that's where most of our job securing the system on the dev team side is, is we're fairly confident that we have an honest majority. And I can tell you what, what we can do if we don't think we have it. We've got a lot of fun little, uh, little, little levers the DAO can pull pretty quickly to cover that. Um, but the biggest is just making sure that there are enough independent operators participate. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious because I, I think if you had to encapsulate the Bitcoin yep. view of the world in a nutshell, it's yeah. that you can't trust people. And they are fundamentally right. malicious. Would yeah. you, do, is that your worldview? I think what I learned from V1 and really from, from years outside of just working on Bitcoin is that, um, that is a fantastic perspective to take if you're building what you believe is the only way to save the world and their, their opportunity and any new freedom money. I think if what, you're, if what you believe and what you think you're doing is building interoperability between chains in a capital efficient way, I think it's like, well, clearly you have to relax that up. I mean, all of society breaks down if you don't relax that at least a little bit, right? And absolutely. Um, yes. Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I guess, <laughs> I, mean, I guess what I'm the, saying is I keep yeah. my foot in both camps. Am I a doomer? A little bit. Um, do I have ch uh, children and trust them to public education? Yes. Uh, do I grow all of my own food? No. And so I think, I think we're kind of in a similar spot here. Um, pragmatically. Yeah. I mean, the fundamental yeah. Bitcoin prepper argument falls apart when you realize they still need ISPs. That's right. Exactly. So, yeah, so this is the balance that I've found. And I think what I've seen is that ultimately what I think people want is they want their money to work for them. They want to be able to not ask questions, not ask permission. Uh, every time it, I use my debit card, it feels like mother may I. And I'm like, oh, it didn't work. Did I get a text? Let me check. Like, you know, versus, um, sure. you know, what we want with both Bitcoin and TBTC is this like mother may I situation should never happen. Now, of course, there's additional risk in using a bridge. It's always going to be safer to have Bitcoin on L1 on a, you know, five of nine multi-sig and you, some of the hardware wallets, you know, you buried various places. Absolutely. That yeah, is going no to be a better. Yeah, but no one does that. Like statistically, no one, no one does that. No one does that. 
And the reason no one does that outside of it just being a huge pain in the ass is because the tooling in, Bif uh, in Bitcoin, frankly, is so difficult. Like an electro yeah, multisig is a huge pain in the ass. Society too. I think, I think it's right. also like an important thing to note that like, I, I don't there, there's always been this like, the thing that always has turned me off from Bitcoin as a community, not as a token or an asset or something sure, like that, sure. is that there's this there's this fundamental assumption that you can't trust anyone. And yet we trust like five core contributors of Bitcoin to maintain the whole thing. We trust sure. Kazakhstan to run 30% of the hash power. Like right. there's a lot there's a lot of like uh, I would I would call it um ostrich introspection going on, <laughs> right? Or it's like I'm sure. only gonna look at the tiny little piece and then my head goes in the sand for the rest. So I'm kind of curious, how has Threshold been received by the Bitcoin community? Obviously, I think the yeah. folks who want to use Bitcoin on Ethereum or Solana are are thrilled that they no longer have to deal with a centralized custodian. But like, what is the result from like the actual hardcore Bitcoiners been? Yeah. So um, I have never met a hardcore Bitcoiner that privately didn't play with every single other piece of tech that mm. we all play with. Now, on Twitter, I find them all the time. They sure. tell me about their time preference and about their stake. I hear all those things, you know? And look, I mean, honestly, I, I'm a little bit, I'm a little part of that culture. Like Bitcoin taught me to save money. I did not understand how to save money before. I didn't understand like what my place in society was. Bitcoin has taught me a lot. And that culture, not even just the tech, but the actual culture has taught me a ton. But yeah, I mean, I, m most of the people who are the loudest hardcore Bitcoiners are people who you think was shot about the system privately play with it. And so I think the question becomes um, how much you will under risk, right? Yeah. So for me, I wanted to buy a house and all I had was Bitcoin. And that's what got me to start TBTC is I said, I have Bitcoin and I'd like to, can I get a house now? And they were like, um, oh yeah, show us your Bitcoin. I was like, here, and they're like, we'll sell that and come back in 30 days and we'll pretend you didn't tell us and we'll say your source of funds is what, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not a criminal. I'm just asking like, hey, I have hard money. I'm good for it. Could I, could I not take on so much debt? Could I just take a little debt so I can buy a house? And, um, and so I think a lot of people are most interested in seeing their property work for them. And for some people, it might be, okay, 95% is in their hodl stash in that five of nine that they buried across the country. But maybe it's just 5% that they'll play with. I think a lot of people, it's probably more like 50 to 80% that they'll play with and 30% is like savings that they're never going to touch. So I guess all about to say, what I found is that Bitcoiners have been pretty pretty down. What they don't like is they don't always like Ethereum. You can't say the E word. And I think one of the exciting things bringing TBTC to Solana is, you know, UX is still rough. We're working on making it better, but people can kind of skip that. I think that there is a group of people who they're fine with other chains quietly, but they do still worry about the flipping. And I think that's yeah. where, um, like it becomes a cultural question rather than a technology question. Yeah, the cultural thing is always. It was interesting for you to say, sort of, so strongly that you're you're worried about the flippening. And the reason, I guess, for me is that, like, the analogy I sort of always think of is like the you know the Greek city states arguing with one another and fighting these little cute wars, and then just you know someone sweeping down the peninsula and being like, well, that was cute, but like we've taken over right. now. And so it's always felt to me that like this this sort of inter crypto war between like whose culture is holier than thou. It, it just, it always feels to just, me like it's missing a lot of- You just put your finger on it. Tokens are religions. And the worst civil war, right? The worst wars are civil and, and it's brother on brother. 
And it's over tiny differences that are totally in the grand scheme of things irrelevant. So like, uh, th I mean, this is my whole, um, people like to talk about like the money, money versus tech. Yeah. Right. And they talk about that in crypto and I'm like, and culture and experience. There are all these other like pretty polarizing axes in our space. So I think the biggest thing, like I'm an engineer who likes to design mostly decentralized protocols, right? Like that's my thing. I like to do the game theory. I like to do the mechanism design. But like, I feel like the thing that crypto has taught me is um, people like to fight that when they don't have anything to fight about, they'll invent sports and that all of our tickers are, are I don't know, most of, most of the most of the trappings become religious or, or tribal very quickly. So I would agree with you on that, but I would actually potentially say the reason the U.S. dollar and the U.S. financial system runs the world is it's not a religion. It's That's a right. ruthless, practical capitalist machine. Yeah. And if what we want to do here is fundamentally create a religion, like, yeah. cool, that's cute. But I don't know if like, like th there's a reason well, that the I, U.S. Well, dollar remember, runs the world and there's no religion that runs the world. But there was, right? So like, what, what would it require, like here would maybe be my counter, what would it require for the world to, to, to leave USD? And it's like, it's hard to imagine anything short of, I mean, I guess we continue to abuse the system and exclude people. So like can, we continuously erode its neutrality, but it does seem like a worldwide religion might be one of the things that could get big enough uh, to convince people to switch. Um, I don't disagree with you though. Like ultimately, if we're not building credibly neutral technology, there's no reason for people to switch. And um, if uh, our arguing about various Doge variants, right, uh, is expressed in the actual financial system we built, people shouldn't join. We, we deserve to be obscure. So. I've used this analogy before for folks who, who listen to the show, but like Twitter listened to its customer base too much and that's why it never succeeded. Whereas yeah. like Facebook is like American football, right? American football, you think it's just like good old American sport and it's like th they rewrite the rules every five years. Like football of a decade ago <laughs> and football played today have almost no relationship to one another besides like the team names are the same, right? Like there's fundamental changes that go on, but it's this sort of, national mythology that it stays the same. Yeah. And yeah. I guess the thing that I always see about the Bitcoin world is it's sort of like, you know, I brought the analogy up before about the gold folks, right? Because the folks who are still screaming about gold are still screaming about gold. They're just screaming in a very small corner that no one pays any attention to. And I guess my concern has always been that, like, if that part of the blockchain industry is the part that stays the part that is the yeah. most successful like the flipping for me is actually crypto going mainstream it's not necessarily like yeah. and, and and there is like yes going mainstream hurts right there's going to be a certain amount of this sort of like self-custody absolutionism that that does yeah. not survive crypto going mainstream and i think the, the the question for me there is always and like i hate to say this like i mean i love to say this but threshold is a part of that, right? It, it's sure. a part of the erosion of the like, you know, yeoman standing in a castle in a field where there's no one else around him, and like, you know, that that sort of like rough and sure. tumble yeah, American self custody yeah. spirit. And instead, threshold comes along and says, "Hey, man, like, there's a really good condo association over here. Like, totally, a, we got a pool, right? Like, so, <laughs> so look, it's funny. Right now, we've been talking about." crypto Twitter and how we view Bitcoiners. But this kind of comes back to my original thought, which is I'm, I'm pretty sure that most people 
view crypto as just one thing. And I actually don't think they see the stake. And I don't think they hear about savings. I don't think they've ever heard the words time preference. I think that what they see is all of us. And then they see like a big orange B. And um, so part of me is like, Austin, well, let's just call the CEO of Bitcoin and get this sorted out because this messaging is messed up and we got we to gotta get it all aligned. So like, yeah, I mean, I look, I agree with you. Obviously, if we could all move as a group and we could say, no, 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 we're building credibly neutral money. We believe finance is a human right. We believe that individuals should have privacy and we think that institutions should be afraid of individuals. Like, you know, I mean, okay, it sounds pretty founding fathers, but there's a version of that. Yeah, that, that's Eric Borges. You know, right. So, so, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is just, uh, I don't, I don't think that the rest of the world views all of crypto. Like right now we're talking about sort of like Bitcoin culture. I think that, I don't think they hear about the self-custody stuff. And I think most people have, who have touched the space are just used to like losing money on Coinbase or Binance. You know, I just think that if Bitcoin is not number one, whoever is number one, that's a chance for a narrative reset and they better nail it. Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of like that, you know, this is before I was born, but the, the reading about the history of the free software movement and about how to them, open source was a horrible bastardization of the values of computer science. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's also a great example when we're talking about civil wars of like yeah. OSS versus Epa. Anyway, we, we could we could nerd out. Um, but yeah, I mean, sorry, going back, we've gone completely off the rails and it's been fun. Um, look, if you're a Bitcoiner, what I'm trying to offer, what we are trying to offer, what Threshold wants to offer is um, a way to make your money useful. If you were a Bitcoiner who is afraid that Bitcoin is be going to become irrelevant, what we're trying to build is a life raft. So I think um, it's like, you know, I, I don't I don't necessarily care if, you know, Solana or Ethereum people, I mean, not that they're the primary critics, but if they don't like TBTC, it's like, well, we're trying to help the people with the Bitcoin. And I think what they want is mostly just, you know, I have a lot of equity locked up in this asset and I would like to be able to leverage it. I'd like to be able to get some USD. Um, that said, it's been really interesting to see the people from the rest of crypto and who do want to hold Bitcoin. Because I think in Solana in particular, what I've seen is the DAOs are interested in, yeah. in diversification. And, um, and then what I've seen in Ethereum and with Ordinals is that uh, we, we have another project at, at the studio that's an Ordinals project. And uh, in some of the survey work we've done, we've seen that something like 75 to 90% of Ordinals users that we've been able to reach were Ethereum users first. Interesting. Isn't it? I would not and have so guessed you, that. No, I had no clue. I had no clue. And I'm still like, this was, it was at least 5,000 people, just to give you an idea. It was pretty, it was pretty and good just response. For those who aren't familiar, Ordinals are an analogy to an NFT on the Bitcoin network. Exactly. Yeah. So I just, I just think that, um, there are a lot of quiet people in the space working across all these things, and they don't care what we're saying on Twitter, and they don't care about our culture wars. They just want their money to be useful. And I think those are the people that we're building for. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny when you when you kind of put it that way. That like, I, I would say that in some ways the flippening of Bitcoin by something else is almost inevitable. The same way that it's hard synthetic... to stay number one forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not even that. It's just like synthetic financial products are worth far more than hard financial products. It's, it's just a function of the multiplicative effects of finance is that the thing that is not the thing will always have more value than the thing. And so it's interesting to think about like, how does Bitcoin kind of navigate that? I, I think there's a world where the Bitcoin network 
and this would, to be clear, never happen in a million years. But if there was a core contributor group that was interested in how do we keep Bitcoin relevant, you would have native Bitcoin on multiple networks. You would have some sort of like Cosmos-esque Bitcoin Oracle network that would be able to sort of manage the distribution of Bitcoin out to multiple areas. And it's kind of funny because in some ways, it's a little bit between like TBTC and Wormhole. That is sort of what you guys are trying to do just without the blessing of the core contributors. Spot on. What else you would do? You would have a tiny tail emission and you would have part of your fee model burning BTC so that it ended up balancing out. You know, earlier I said Bitcoin life raft. That is like the most incredibly arrogant. I don't I don't need to build Bitcoin a life raft. Like I think it's going to continue to to be Bitcoin no matter what I do. But I do um, I do want to make sure that it stays relevant across our space. And I don't want it to just become the one over financialized like, oh, yeah. Oh, I bought some Bitcoin. Oh, you mean the ETF? Right. No, that's not what I mean. That's the, you know, the the real Mm. opposite of like non-custodial is uh, this like over-financialization where it's like, because there's nothing cool to do with Bitcoin on chain, everyone just learns about the stock market and and and, and trading is fights. Yeah, I feel like the, the biggest onboarding that Robinhood ever had was Bitcoin. And it wasn't yeah. for the sake of Bitcoin. It was that people started buying Bitcoin and then they were like, what more interesting stuff can I do? And then they exactly. discovered options trading. And it's kind of funny, like, but the way we talk about it is so zero sum. Because even you, you know, you're like, oh, a life raft for Bitcoin. Like, that is a totally valid analogy. But the, the the other slight spit on that is like, maybe what Bitcoin actually needs is a container ship, right? Because right now it's an economy that has zero inflows and outflows. The, the funny thing about this particular moment, mentioning zero inflows and zero outflows, is like our work making Bitcoin more useful it I it, I struggle to say that it will bring more people to the space, right? I don't think that's what it'll do. The way that I look at this, right, is you have this funnel. And, you know, today, let's say the, the top of the space uh, for all of crypto is like Coinbase or, you know, whatever. Maybe it's something like Fold or maybe it's something like River or Swan. And then and then you go down. And if you're looking at uh, as a Bitcoin holder, like the, the next level down is um, maybe it's like uh, moving your Bitcoin uh, to a ledger. And then there might be one more level down, which is like running a lightning node, you know, but then you look at the other way that people go. And I think what often happens is like you buy Bitcoin on one of these things and then you're like, oh my God, look at all these other tickers. Then you buy all these other things and then slowly, slowly you find your way on chain and you're like, okay, so now I've got like, like, like Phantom or MetaMask and, and then I go down and now I'm on like Uniswap and like, then you go all the way down and you're like, okay, now I'm like, you know, 9X leverage doing some like weird, you know, like uh, interest rate ARB. Right. And uh, there's just a lot more, but it's all in our space. And so I think that's what I really want to see with Bitcoin is like, it's a really poor outcome for me, for people to buy Bitcoin and leave and just like leave it sitting Hmm. versus like all of these other places where their lives could be impacted. And I mean, I guess I just named a lot of financial products, so I promise there are other ways. But, you know, so I think I think that's what I really want to see with TBTC is um, to make that funnel deep and interesting and and you know, to basically completely slay this pet rock meme. Okay, I want to ask you kind of a a little bit more of an existential question here. This is very popular David Hoffman tweet, which is something along the lines of, crypto wasn't invented to make you rich, it was invented to set you free. Yeah. First off, I think on its face, great statement. We can all sign up for that. So why is everyone so worried about the price? Like fundamentally, every time you talk to someone about Bitcoin, the thing that they're focused on is the price of Bitcoin, it feels like. And I, 
there's a there's a how would I put this? There's a duality here where it's like it feels like because the only thing Bitcoin can do is go up and down. That's yeah, the only thing exactly. anyone ever talks about about Bitcoin. Whereas yeah. like the you know the the more and yes, there's all this like oh is ETH going up? Is Sol going up? Sure. And like at the end of the day, like Solana and Ethereum are smart contract networks that are designed to be used. They're not designed to be held. And sort of like where do you like where do you see the interplay there between like usability and like this abstract concept of freedom? Yeah. So uh, that is a great question. Um, okay. So let me get the cheap responses out of the way so we can get to the good stuff. So cheap response. Oh, well, that's not the true Bitcoin. That's not. So there's like a no true Scotsman thing, I think, where people say, well, a hole that you know about Bitcoin is it going up and down. You haven't really bought Bitcoin. You've bought an entry in a ledger somewhere and they're still controlling you, yada, yada, yada. So uh, look, if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard that. We've all heard that. The truth is there's a serious trade-off between freedom and, I mean, individual liberty and consequences. And people want to be free to make their own choices. But it is difficult to remember that that means you will suffer the consequences of those choices. I mean, the way that I, I would like to see the world and the way that if I have my druthers, like where we're pushing the pendulum of history is toward more personal responsibility. It's toward more planning. It's toward thinking about yourself and your family and recognizing that the political situation around you can change very quickly. Recognizing that, no, like you were very lucky to be born, say in the US, but that doesn't mean that you're never going to have a hard time. So I think I think that, you know, it's now taking a totally different tack. People didn't really use Signal for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, in the industry we did, and then like a lot of like security people did, but it wasn't widespread. But like my normies are so, on Signal now. Right. But normies are on Signal now. And like, oh God, you got to download Signal. And I think that in some ways our space, one version of our space is Signal. You know, it doesn't matter until you need it. And then suddenly half of the economy moves over because you know, they're going to a protest or because there was a breakdown. So that's the Bitcoin view of the space. And I think there's also a techno optimist view of the space. Yeah. Which I think is what a lot of smart contract chains are building toward. And uh, and the truth is, I want to see both. Right. I want to see that if you are being oppressed, that you have another option and that you have an escape valve. Uh, but I also want to see us build a world that's like more equitable and fair and efficient from the ground up. And um, I think that we can do both those things. I think that's probably the difference between me and a lot of Bitcoin-only people. Yeah. And that's also probably the difference between me and a lot of smart contract folks is a lot of them think they're building the future. And I think, well, that's part of what we're doing. The other part is we're defending what people already have. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense that your life has led you to threshold. Yeah. We've talked a lot about TBTC and obviously I've gone my like orange-pilled laser eyes. I've gotten some of that out of my system. But I guess it's worth talking a little bit about the the threshold merge as well, because uh, I recognize that it's uncommon. Yeah, the merge is fascinating because, like, look, everything is obvious in hindsight. That's one of the the truisms of the technology industry. But there is a real world where, like, I am old enough to remember when the Bitcoiners said lightning was the devil, right? Yeah. And 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 this sort of idea that like uh, two networks that are doing ancillary things that are not quite the same things. Um, yeah. could come together and actually like 
literally go through a decentralized merger. Like, how did that come about? And and talk to me a little bit about how that actually resulted in Threshold on the other end. It's been surprising. Um, so Keep had built TBTC, um, and V1 was out, and the world was using it. And we were looking at V2. We were asking ourselves, like, what compromises can we make? And what changes can we make to make this thing it was way too difficult to use in V1 for stakers, but also just for depositors? How can we make it simple? So as we were working on this, we heard about another network that was considering, like another team, really, because networks don't consider things. We heard about another team um, that was considering launching um, a incredibly decentralized uh, Bitcoin-backed token. And that was the new Cypher team. Hey. And so the funny thing about, about keeping new Cypher is we were always kind of frenemies. So we had a lot of mutual respect for each other. And we had similar people who we would call out in the space who were examples of folks who like to say, oh, decentralization or, you know, whatever the, whatever the technical signing buzzword was, but they may, might not follow through and actually build the thing. And, and so both teams had a lot of respect for each other. And we also had a lot of community members in common. We had uh, bison trails in common. We had um, just uh, some investors. So we had a lot of people in common. And when we heard, um, we heard that this team was considering doing this token, it's easy to just get very defensive when you hear about a competitor. Yeah. And, um, and my thought around a, a new cipher, like Bitcoin token, was a couple of things. One, it's like, oh, they could actually do it. Like they could actually do it well. And the other was that, um, like, why? Why would we waste? Why would we waste our energy building these competing things when we could build one? So, some community members um, actually reached out and connected me and McLean. Um, one of them was from Bryson Trails. Uh, we had a, a couple others on, on Discord. Victor and Bunyan, I'm guessing. Victor, indeed, yeah. Um, so, Victor and then a few other shared community members reached out, and they actually kind of brokered a call between me and McLean. Um, I will admit that first call, I did have a little bit of whiskey. I'm not much of a drinker, but uh, it was just, it was a strange call and a strange time. But, um, you know, I think what we both did, and I think oftentimes how, when something goes through competition to cooperation, how it works is you just have this mutual decision to kind of put our, all your cards on the table. And um, we already knew, look, we all, we all have these, we have these community members who have been telling us to find a way to work together, service providers, I investors. So let's just put our cards on the table. So we did. And I said, look, this is what we're doing. I've heard you guys are doing this. Is there a way for us? I think I was the first one to say, is there a way for us to do this together hmm. and, and to sort of like offer the offer the branch? So what happened after that got really weird, right? Um, if this were a private m a there would be board discussions and, and relationships between shareholders and all of these other components um, that uh, the market has sort of figured out how to do, right? So it's like, oh, you have your investment bankers and you have your advisories and there's just an entire ecosystem that's been built. Sure, it's um, usually none of that... even laid out in the founding investment documents and corporate charter. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So you, so you have all this stuff and it's and it's like um, everyone knows a little bit about it. Uh, if nothing else, they've seen something on TV, right? But for what we were doing, we had no clue. Um, there were a few things that, uh, that we kind of made clear and then we started moving into like larger and larger community discussions. So one of them was that we knew um, from New Cypher's side um, there, and this was from their team and it became a community thing from their team. They said, there will be no token holder left behind. If we do something like this, it has to always be possible for anyone to opt in or to opt out. So that's pretty weird. And, um, and, it, and it makes sense. Like no one wants to miss a snapshot. You don't want people who are on an exchange to get missed, whatever. But that was that was the first constraint, and then the one that I pushed, um, and really that all the key push was um, 
we want to be treated as equals. Yeah. We do not care what the price is between these two assets. That is completely irrelevant to what we're doing. If we are going to create a new network where anyone from either old network can migrate over, then the price is irrelevant and it should be 50-50. And then what that became is uh, me and McLean were like, okay, cool. Both of these are hard for a variety of reasons, but let's do it. And we each wrote proposals. And then at that point, it became the beginnings of the threshold down. So people from each side would write proposals on the new Cypher side and write proposals on the Keep side. And they iterated and they iterated and they iterated. And I think the incredible thing is that they ended up stopping iterating on something uh, that they were happy with. Yeah. Yeah. But things that I've learned, just because you have a decentralized network doesn't mean that someone's not going to step up. And, you know, when something needs to get done, there are still people and there are still community members that have to step up and actually do it. For me and McLean, we had to have that first call. But then after that, most of these proposals weren't us and, and people put aside their time to write them and kind of think through the mechanism. Um, other things that we've learned. If I if someone else were doing one uh, today, like it's kind of remarkable that neither team or community built a lot of accountability into this system. So we didn't build in any way for either person, either group to earn in. We didn't build, a, uh, we didn't build like uh, KPIs or milestones or anything like that. What we relied on instead is well, anyone can always opt out by downgrading to the original token. And so I think that's always, that's also kind of interesting is we set it up so that like either group could sort of like exit, but we didn't set up, you know, the the various KPIs I've seen in traditional um, M&A. Yeah, all very weird. Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess my question would be, do you think the ability to exit was real? Like this is the thing you hear all the time is like, yeah. Just because someone like I technically have the ability to opt out of the US dollar financial system, but I practically don't. Yeah. I I mean I think at the beginning the ability to exit in a in a in a merge like this was really important because if there weren't an economic majority in the state token, it's just you've just created a new token and that's it. But um but I think that the more like I, I really haven't seen any people use that other than right kind of at the beginning. And I think the longer we go without people using it, the less and less and less likely it is that people ever would, right? Because eventually it's like, okay, well, the new asset people know. And at some point people will have never heard of Keepem, I've never heard of Noom and exchanges delist things and say, and they tell sure. their users these things have merged. And so it's like, even though we left that ability to exit for people on chain, a lot of people off chain exchanges had to make decisions. Maybe right. they listed all three. Maybe they maybe they combined their order books into one. They did all sorts of weird stuff, and uh, and we didn't really have any guidance for them because you know we this was the first time we had seen this done on chain. So yeah, so so maybe that maybe that uh, ability to exit wasn't real, but it definitely in the first like three four months was absolutely something that anyone could have basically used to to kill merge. Well, Matt, I think that's about all the time we have today. Thanks for coming on and chatting about Bitcoin and Threshold and the crazy journey that got you here. Oh, thank you, Austin. Really appreciate you having me. 